Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. We're the kind of Christians who like the Bible a lot, but we're not going to thump you with it. We believe in the world-changing power of Jesus and the present-day work of the Holy Spirit to change things. Right now, the whole world is in a process of adapting to new realities, and so are we. Building community and sharing all this love and power suddenly seems like it might become a bit more challenging. But really, how lucky are we that we're facing all this in the 21st century? Throughout the duration of this new world coronavirus order, we'll be doing all of church online. But we're not afraid. We worship a God who is bigger than all of this, who's seen it all before, and will work all things together for the good of those who love him. We love you, and we're here. Stay in touch and enjoy this podcast. I was a bit taken aback a few days ago to innocently open my Instagram stories and see some videos made by a man that I like and respect very much. I don't think we would call him an influencer because I think both of us are too old for that, but I'm not completely sure. Anyway, he was very upset and he was in his car driving around this neighbourhood with his window wound down shouting casserole at people. Casserole! Casserole! Casserole. He wasn't actually saying casserole, he was using a word that sounds a bit like casserole but it's a bit meaner, but I'm just aware that children might be listening. And I know why he was upset. He is immunosuppressed and very, very scared about getting this virus and has been building actually over weeks to a position of absolute incredulity over why people don't wear masks when they're outside. Why do people sit in their yards chatting to each other without masks on? Why do they walk their dogs? Why do they sit on the green spaces down Los Feliz Boulevard in casual conversation without their masks on? Maybe because they are selfish and they don't care about the needs of the at-risk in our communities. Maybe their own mental health is at risk and they desperately need to see a friend. Maybe they're in recovery from an addiction and having an urgent meeting with their sponsor. Maybe they're all members of the same family who live together in a very, very small apartment and urgently needed some fresh air. It just all goes to show it's quite easy to lose sight of each other's stories. The realities of what we're all facing. Walk a mile in another man's shoes, so the saying goes, which is a disgusting thought, but we know what it means. Empathy and a sense of connection is a lot easier to muster when we have the full story. That's what good writing is all about, which brings me to today's passage. The Hebrews, as we know, were masterful storytellers and Genesis is Hebrew storytelling at its highest. Carrying on from Ed's talk last week, we are looking at the patriarchs, the origins of the people of Israel as was formed in the line of Abraham, down through Isaac, this week's patriarch. Patriarch, can't get enough of that word. Um, And Ed will do Jacob next week. Three generations of men who became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, who lived somewhere around 2000 BC, probably a little bit earlier during the Bronze Age. That's as long before Jesus as we are afterwards, which is quite a staggering thought, isn't it? Stories about the line of Abraham and of course what happened in Egypt and with the law would have been passed down orally. 
and there certainly were some written ancient sources, but the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament as we know it, didn't come together as a thing until roughly 1500 years later, when, as we keep harking on about, the Israelites were returning from their epoch-defining, faith-shaping exile. This 50-year experience of loss, of loss of land, loss of temple, the stuff that they believed their identity was based on. And it was at this time, in light of these events, that the Pentateuch came together as a compilation of ancient accounts, laws and writings, telling the whole story together. We know this because of things that are detailed in the accounts that we've looked at before. Um, the inclusion of, sort of and responses to Babylonian myths, the, um, people, their captors' myths, responses to those, and because of things that hadn't happened yet, they could possibly have known when this is originally happened. So the Pentateuch, which is important, is written in reflection of their capture, and it's written like Israel's constitution. This is who we are. This is what God has promised to us. This is what we still believe, despite everything. A constitution to its own people, a generation or two of whom were born as captives as a nation, returning from exile to connect them to their past. So it's just really important at this stage, and I just wanted to say this, and I know this isn't a deal for everyone, but I do believe enough of us have been raised with this worldview. I want to make this vital point about the Bible. It's not a rule book. It includes history, but it's not a history book. It's not a flat line. We make an enormous mistake when we project our post-enlightenment presumptions regarding history and storytelling onto writers who were addressing very old, pre-modern dilemmas through very old genres of writing. These stories about their past were never simply about understanding their past for its own sake but about viewing their past from a particular perspective of how it spoke to their present. And if we can see this for all that it means, it means that we won't throw away all the value and beauty of the Old Testament baby away with the angry, genocide God, never mind, we've got Jesus now, bathwater. If we understand these contexts properly, we will actually be in a better position to see what these ancient voices have to say about what God was always like. And I have to say, I love teaching on this stuff. I love it because when you choose not to look away from these confusing to our eyes stories, they reveal so much more about who God has always been than we might know. As Peter Enns writes, he wrote a very accessible new book called How the Bible Actually Works, if you're interested in exploring this stuff a little bit more. The Bible is not a stagnant pond of rules and regulations. It is a flowing stream that invites us to step in and be refreshed anew every day in following Jesus today. A point to which I will return after the reading. Thanks, Emil. Genesis 22, 1 through 14. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. He had cut them enough wood for the burnt offering. He set out for the place that God had told him about. 
On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the word for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb of the burnt offering, my son. And the two went up together. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took out the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there was a thicket he saw a ram, caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So, everyone's favourite bedtime story. God tells Abraham to murder his son, and as soon as he sees that he's willing to do it, he tells him that he doesn't have to, he passed the test, kill the lamb instead. It's actually quite a thing that we teach these to children, isn't it? With no explanation of the context. Do you remember any of these images from your childhood? Why does God like withers of blood? was one thing my inquisitive four-year-old bellowed at across the LA bike path a couple of years ago after being read a story from a kid's bible. Imagine. It actually ranks as my second favourite inappropriate thing for a pastor's kid to say behind her oldest when she was two and she whispered in the dark after I prayed the thank you that you never leave us uh, Jesus prayer at bedtime. Is Jesus here now? Please don't go. We might have been taught to see this story through God's eyes, that it's a positive example of the kind of faith he likes, an obedience, immediate and without hesitation, or through Abraham's eyes. It's a dramatic moment in his story. He's waited for God to come good on his promise for years, and now he finally has some land and some roots and this long awaited for son. And God is saying, don't get too attached to anything. Be willing to give it all up, move to Azerbaijan as a missionary if that's what I ask of you, Abes. Attachment to anything but God is the problem. But what about Isaac's eyes? It'd be bad enough to be tied up and nearly sacrificed by anybody, but by your father, when he's supposed to be your protector? How is this story okay? I imagine this story stings particularly to anyone whose earthly father hasn't protected you or made too many sacrifices on your behalf, or put too many other things before you. And I imagine more than a few of us were quite scared of what obedience to God's call might look like with these images searing our young psyches. And we know we're all putting our 2020 vision on this story. No one will mind when this year's over, but I'm gonna use that pun for all it's worth in the meantime. 
But let us now spend a couple of minutes exploring what this story meant about their origins to the returning from exile Jewish people in 500 or so BC, who, let's not forget this detail, have heard the law, which categorically says sacrificing your firstborn child is wrong. And of course, they know that Isaac makes it, what with him being one of the patriarchs and all. But a couple of things to notice. The idea of one God was very unusual. God hadn't actually spelled that out to Abraham yet. The whole no other God but me thing came quite a long time later. In an ancient Canaanite worldview, survival was dependent on forces beyond your control. Whether, mainly, your women's fertility working, and the men's obviously, but they didn't believe that, just the women's, not to mention the threat of other tribes and their gods. Most ancients had whole systems for what they believed controlled these forces, whole systems of gods, arbitrary and unpredictable, and the gods needed pleasing. As a complete side note, that's why the law in Leviticus is detailed and unthinkably complicated as it reads to us, was actually revolutionary, codifying what this God's law looked like, knowing how to keep him happy, was absolutely unheard of. Sacrificial systems then existed long before this story on the Mount of Moriah. Sacrifice was the pre-existing human response to need, to chaos, and to the fear that we might be to blame. For the rains not coming, for babies dying, infant mortality was at a rate of something like one in three. Imagine that. Random and unpredictable. Sacrifice was all about what you could do to keep the gods on your side. And to a tribal worldview, unlike ours, nothing was more important than family line, and in family line, nothing was more important than a firstborn. Ancient people immediately understood all firstborns embody hopes and dreams for the whole family, a notion that, as we've already looked at, God subverts in the story of Cain and Abel, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, by favouring the younger. God doesn't favour as the world favours. But in human terms, the gods are owed what is best. And for the good of the tribe, this means that the firstborn of any animal or human needed to be sacrificed. Sacrificing the firstborn was a thing throughout the region. Give the gods your best, your most precious, and they will look favourably upon you and your people but not to the God of Israel. Child sacrifice was prohibited in the law and every listener knew it. The story of Isaac and Abraham is a massive subversion, a totally new kind of God. Notice that Abraham doesn't question God and Isaac doesn't question Abraham because it's right there in verse five, he says to his servants, we will worship and then we will come back to you. The listener never thinks Isaac's going to die. They're both coming out of the woods alive. The point of this story is not you should love God so much that you'd be willing to sacrifice your child if he asks you to, but you should leave behind the very notion of a God that would ask you to. This God is different. He isn't cruel and arbitrary. This God never needed blood sacrifice. He loves Abraham's faith. 
but it's he who favours and he who provides. In verse 8, Abraham says, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Woven into this, the intricate structure of this thing that flows as a series of summon, response and commands. Don't worry about that bit. But the standout, the red herring thing structurally, which was a technique that the Hebrews used often to draw attention to something in the story, is this line. God will provide himself the lamb. Provision. A very, very important tenet of who God is to its original audience, as well as to many of us right now, I think. Abraham has faith that God will provide, and when he does, a ram, a male lamb, as the story goes, he names the place Ra'ah. God will provide. Literally, God will see to it. Uh, see to it that everything is appropriately cared for. And this comes right after the name that he gives to the lamb that he plants, um, the trees in the chapter before, El Olam, the enduring God. El Olam means more like God of the grand scheme of things, and here it is, God of the stuff we need in the moment another revolutionary statement. He's not just a replacement deity for one of your many God categories. He's filling all the roles of deity. These are giant leaps forward in the human understanding of the divine. Rather than demanding sacrifice, this God gives and blesses. This God is very different. This is revolutionary. But there's more, would you even believe it? Because all this goodness, all this completely new kind of God stuff for the Jewish people post-captivity doesn't even scratch the surface of the good news it pointed to. A crucified and resurrected Messiah, not the story ending that Israel ever expected, but it was in hindsight pointed towards the whole way along. Whether we can see it immediately or not, the entire Bible points to Jesus. And it's very clearly here in this story, the way it foretells. Isaac foreshadowing Jesus as beloved, as awaited for sons. Both of whom obediently follow their fathers to the altar, carrying wood, the wood that's the instrument of their own death on their backs. When Abraham says God will provide the lamb, it's Jesus who he was talking about all along. Jesus who offers himself unblemished. In Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, which is the promise that the angel reiterates to Abraham in the verses that follow this passage. In fact, here God swears an oath about all of the nations of the earth being blessed, the first time he ever does that. We are all chosen, and this is revolutionary. This is completely different. This God, who hasn't changed a jot, since the dawn of time. The gospel has always been the lens through which we're supposed to read Israel's stories. Jesus, not any rule book, has the final word. His way, his grace, his never failing, never ending love that accepts, includes and provides for us all. Our present day realities are extremely different to the majority of the situations that we read about in the Bible and the ones that it was written to address. And I don't think we often address how confusing that can be. That, well, Jesus came, he did all of this, and yet the world is so messed up still. 
we as Christians live in the legacy of crusades and pilgrims and so much racist, racism and misogyny and despicable things to the LGBTQ community. Even in very recent years, so much of it in Jesus' name. And the events of this week, what's come to light in Georgia, feels like a pretty massive punch to the gut to anyone who believes there's been progress for any of us, most of all African-Americans. And yet, driven we must be on behalf of armoured arboreys and many, many, many black women and children who do not feel safe or free or protected by a justice system that so many of us just take for granted. We must press on towards the goal, as Paul puts it. This event does and should make us angry, furiously angry, but spur us towards what we know it is like in God's kingdom, where we are all one, all, no matter our gender, race, social demographic, political persuasion or sexual orientation, loved, included, provided for. It's our firm position that Jesus includes everyone and it's this that drives us forward. The page turn that we're on right now, the change to our known reality, I think it's probably a bigger one than most of us have ever witnessed or experienced in our lifetimes. And what we have is a relationship with a living, breathing God, whose promises are as true to us as they were to a nomadic, idol-worshipping family who lived around 4,000 years ago. A God who always has, and still does, call humanity forward. So let us do what we can to live that. Let's not be scared of the sacrifice part anymore. Sure, there is a cost to following him, but also when we say yes to him, when we step into the flow of his kingdom, when we receive the grace, the spirit's power, we understand what all of this means. And it's not cost, it's love. It's a way that can't fail. Justice and mercy, forgiveness and redemption for everyone. Grace and love always win because they don't give a monkeys about winning. The way of the kingdom is what our world is crying out for and always has been. So, as we said, we have got the prayer team ready to go. You will know, if you know the way that we do things at Bread, that we do everything. Our goal in every time we meet together is to help you and us open ourselves to the Spirit's power because it is his work, his healing, his changing work to do. And there are two things I think he's talking about this morning. Firstly, he is good. If the bloodthirsty, pain-loving Old Testament God was preached to you, or if you've laboured under a faith that's built on fearing him, it's so hard to let that go. It is so hard to believe and understand that he is a loving father and a kind mother, a protector, not a knife wielder that he folds you under his wing like a mother hen does her chicks. It's the spirit that rewrites this stuff in our minds and our spirits. It's him that heals this pain. So please join the Zoom call today. Let someone play, pray with you and bless what he's doing as you invite him to do it. The other thing I think is that he is faithful to provide. 
And I know that some of us are clinging to that faith by our fingernails right now. So please join the call. Um, someone will go off into a little room with you to um, a virtual room to pray with you one-on-one -on -one as we normally do. Stories of his provision like this ancient one build our faith, but as a church, we believe in the importance of hearing new stories. So following right after the song of ministry that Ben's about to play, there'll be three short stories from Raoul, Cotts and Jackie, all of whom we prayed for in Wednesday prayer zooms, all of whom have had some pretty amazing answers and provision that they want to tell you about. So check those out in a minute and do join us for prayer. But first, let me pray. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are not restricted by our distance, that you still work the same way that you always do, that you always come to heal, you always come to remind us of how loved we are, you always come to bring hope. Will you bring hope to those of us that need it now? To those of us mourning what's happened in the news this week, to those of us who feel scared about our safety. We particularly pray for um, those of us who are African-American. Would you comfort them and speak to them, empower them? Thank you for the belonging that you bring in this family that knows no division. Thank you for what the kingdom of God is for us and for all of us. In Jesus' name, Amen. There's nothing worth more could ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence. Tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves when my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. Your presence, Holy Spirit, you are welcome. Tasted and seen of the sweetest of love. 
friends. I've got a story to share here. Um, as the pandemic unfolded, I eventually lost my job and I was questioning whether or not I should go back to school because uh, I was just thinking about the financial pressure that this would put on our family. And as I was kind of just on the fence, I thought, you know what? I'm in this pandemic. I'm going to be sheltered at home, no work. Like I might as well just... Um, 
keep on with the quarter. And a couple uh, days later, after I had made my decision, um, I get an email from the admissions office saying that I was given a grant um, for this upcoming semester, for this upcoming quarter. And I hadn't gone out looking for it. I didn't apply for it. Um, they just said, hey, this is $850 that we're giving to you. Um, it's from these donors. Like, feel free to, you know, do whatever you'd like with it. Um, and so I took that and I was like, wow, this is a sign that this is where I'm supposed to be. Um, continuing my education, continuing with what I feel I should be doing at the moment. And um, also as a reminder that uh, God is with us and that um, he answers prayer. Um, and so I share this story to say, first of all, thank you um, to Brad for praying. Uh, as all this was happening, um, you guys were praying for us, praying for our family, praying for provision. Um, and God really uh, answered your prayers. And so thank you for that. Um, and I hope we can gather again soon. Hi, I'm Akatsi. Um, some of you know me, some of you don't. Um, just to share a quick story of what happened to me this last month is um, I'd gotten hopeful about a, uh, well, two things. I had made a prayer request uh, in a Zoom meeting at, with Brett, and I typically don't like to make uh, prayer requests for myself and what I need. I don't like to talk about what I need. I don't know why that is. But I decided to do it that day. And shortly after, I thought I had an answer to prayer because an email came in just the way um, Alice had described it and Ed had just spoken on it. Long story short, it didn't pan out that way. Um, and my two repair requests were for housing and for work. Long story short, within these last two, uh, within this last week actually, um, I got a job or got commissioned to write a script that, keep in mind, that's originally what I wanted to do. That's like writing was what I wanted. And I got housing for free in, in the sense that a couple let me have their place while they're gone for months. And I could never have uh, initially imagined or asked for that in my original prayer request. Um, so it was just a beautiful, humbling moment of how God is better than my prayer requests, <laughs> or at least just puts the color behind my dull requests. But, yeah. So I got laid off from a job in December that moved me out here to LA, and that was super heartbreaking um, from then on till just recently, because losing the job is just it really does something to your self-worth and it makes you feel like you aren't enough and all these lies. Then I started going to bread and just met some really amazing people in like my, my city groups and in my super small groups and I've just been really able to do life with them and to just been really fortunate to share my heart with them and exactly what's going on in my life. And They've just been constantly praying for me during this time and even in times when I don't feel like praying um, with my job stuff because it was really stressful with financial stuff and just trying to figure out, do I stay here? Do I move back? Like, I don't know. Um, but I am very 
grateful to say that I was offered a job two weeks ago from this role that I got reached out to about on LinkedIn. I definitely thought it was a scam at first um, and that they just wanted my social security number, but they're actually real. <laughs> they're um, from a company that I love so much and I just want to encourage anyone that may be feeling this way or just maybe feeling just so like just not hopeful in this time because it's it's very valid to feel so it's scary like we don't know what's going to happen a lot of things are on the line for a lot of people um but i do want to encourage you with this that the people at bread they are just the most genuine and caring people that really just want to know who you are as you are and they want you to come as you are and i think that was probably the most prominent thing that i've learned during this like four or five month time of unemployment um is that when you come as you are and you are really so vulnerable with people i think that's when you experience like the most true and genuine connections with others um and i want to encourage that that if you are feeling this way just please reach out because we're all here for one another and we're all here to support one another and just because we're social distancing doesn't mean that we can't emotionally be so present with one another so thank you for listening um and i can't wait to see you all soon miss your beautiful faces miss those trader joe's cookies that we would all eat during church can't wait to see you all again soon <laughs>